the more complex both communications technology and the means of attacking uh, our efforts to protect ourselves become, um, right, the more impossibly demanding, in a sense, it is to perfectly protect yourself. Hello, this is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm your host, Deb Malamud. On October 26, 2019, Rudy Giuliani told Rich Shapiro, an NBC reporter, that he needed his colleague to call Robert, presumably Robert Mangus, a registered Turkish agent and lawyer at the same firm that used to employ Giuliani. The problem is we need some money, Giuliani told the reporter. We need a few hundred thousand. Shapiro didn't totally understand what Giuliani was saying. He hadn't prompted him to say any of it, but he knew exactly why Giuliani was telling him all of this. It was a butt dial. Shapiro promptly recorded and reported that which Giuliani never intended for him to hear. According to Huff v. Spa, a case decided by the Sixth Circuit in 2015, an individual whose pocket dial is intercepted and recorded by a private party enjoys no reasonable expectation of privacy. This decision raises questions about how the Fourth Amendment accounts for imperfect or unorthodox uses of technology and whether an accident can amount to consent. To answer these questions and more, I'm joined by Lior Strahilovitz, Margaret Hu, and Julian Sanchez. Lior Strahilovitz is the Sidley Austin Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. Margaret Hu is a Professor of Law and International Affairs at the Pennsylvania State University. She is also a member of the Advisory Board of the Future of Privacy Forum in Washington, D.C. Julian Sanchez is a Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, where he focuses on national security and intelligence surveillance, and a founding editor of the policy blog Just Security. Without further ado, thank you, Professor Strahilovitz, for joining us. Thanks so much. Could you tell our listeners what happened in Huff v. Spa and why it's significant? Huff v. Spa is a, a case that arose and was appealed to the Sixth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals. There's a big battle over who's going to run in a regional airport in Ohio. And there's kind of two warring factions, one associated with the board of directors and another with the uh, with the airport chairman and uh, the airport chairman was was a male the um, the executive was a was a female and the chair was plotting with an associate about how they might get rid of the executive and in so doing they um, had a number of conversations in person overseas that were accidentally recorded or not accidentally recorded. They were accidentally transmitted and knowingly recorded by an executive assistant back in the United States. So essentially what happens is um, two members of the board are sort of plotting about how do they oust the airport's executive. And uh, they didn't realize that that conversation was being picked up by the executive's assistant. Uh, And the reason it was being picked up by the executive's assistant is that uh, the board chairman had accidentally pocket dialed or colloquially butt dialed uh, the executive uh, right at the start of the conversation. The secretary immediately said, hey, uh, I think you dialed me by accident. This shouldn't be happening. But the board chairman continued to talk, apparently didn't hear those warnings. And once the conversation's content became pretty clear to the, to the secretary, oh my gosh, they're talking about ousting my boss, 
uh, then she decided, well, rather than hang up, I'm going to continue to listen in and inform, you know, my boss, inform other people at the airport of what might be headed uh, her way. Uh, there's an allegation in the case that um, that some of the conversations among members of the board reflected uh, unlawful uh, sex discrimination against the executive. And so there may have been some sexist things that were uh, said during the conversation. And um, we don't know all the details, but I think that may have given uh, the secretary reason to be particularly alarmed about what um, people were trying to do to to her boss. So that that's the basic um, the basic facts of the case. the The call winds up being uh, surreptitiously um, listened to and recorded for a really good uh, length of time. The call goes, I think, for over an hour. And um, the last portion of the call is actually recorded uh, by by the secretary. Uh, okay, so the the legal issue that arises here actually arises more under um, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act than under the Fourth Amendment, though the the legal inquiry is pretty similar between the two of them. And for the purposes of the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, the question is whether when uh, the, the chairman, James Huff, when he made that, uh, that um, accidental phone call, uh, did he, and when he was subsequently engaging in face-to-face conversations with people who were with him overseas, did he exhibit a reasonable expectation of privacy? If so, then the um, surreptitious recording of the conversation could be unlawful under the, under the statute. And uh, if not, then, then the surreptitious recording wouldn't have violated his expectation of privacy and therefore uh, wouldn't have been unlawful. The law here seems to skip ahead of societal expectations of privacy. Is that a feature or a bug of privacy law? Yeah, so... Um, you know, there are some Fourth Amendment cases that involve expectations of privacy, not with respect to, to government actors, but with respect to private actors. And so those are the third-party doctrine cases. And there's uh, now a, um, a line of authority that, that has, has been called into question by the Carpenter case, a line of authority that says if you share you know, your, your financial information with a bank, you, uh, you don't have an expectation of privacy in that information as against, uh, as against the government. Or if you, um, share information about who you're dialing with, uh, the cell, with the telephone company, you don't have an expectation of privacy that, uh, that prevents the government from obtaining that information. Those are the holdings from two U.S. Supreme Court cases um, called uh, Miller, uh, United States versus Miller and Smith versus Maryland. So there is this idea that if you share information with someone else, you shouldn't complain about its subsequent exposure to the government. The trouble is this has been rendered pretty unstable because of that Carpenter case that we just talked about, where in Carpenter, you do, sa- you do share your geolocation information with your cell phone provider. Uh, and yet, the U.S. Supreme Court majority rejected the idea 
that this voluntary sharing with your cell phone provider meant that you lost your expectation of privacy with respect to that geolocation information vis a vis the police. There's another line of authority about undercover government informants where I think I'm sharing information with another private person. It turns out I'm sharing. Uh, information with uh, a government agent unbeknownst to me, and that government agent may even be wearing a wire. Uh, In those cases, generally, the courts have um, said, if you're talking to someone, you kind of assume the risk that they might be an undercover agent. And so uh, if it turns out, you know, you were, you, you uh, misplaced your trust in them, that's on you. That's not on the government. Government doesn't need a search warrant to use undercover informants typically. Uh, So those are the sort of the key uh, legal precedents. And I think the the heart of your question, the answer to it's pretty unstable. So I think Carpenter suggests that uh, the Supreme Court is really wrestling with this idea of, Helen Nissenbaum would call this contextual integrity, whether uh, sharing information with one person uh, means a willingness to share it with broader society. Nissenbaum uh, has some great scholarship that suggests that the whole point of privacy is often this selective and highly contextualized sharing, where um, you know I'm willing to confide in a in a friend or a therapist uh, or a lawyer or an accountant, but would never think that that uh, confidence could be could be breached. And I think Huff versus Spa has some of the same uh, kinds of issues where here's uh, James Huff. He's talking first to a business associate and then to his spouse in a hotel room. And in both instances, the butt dial sort of betrays him. And uh, and he has those, what he thought were very intimate uh, conversations with a trusted business associate and then with his spouse he has those conversations uh, revealed to the broader world. So what does all this mean for imperfect or unorthodox uses of technology? Does Huff shed light on what the test might be for something like an Apple Watch? What factors might the court consider? It's a great question. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that's uh, surprising is that there haven't been that many court cases that consider this issue, even though it comes up all the time. There have been some neat, uh, newspaper articles that uh, and magazine articles that talk about accidentally activating Siri or accidentally activating other digital assistants and accidentally ordering uh, products or accidentally placing phone calls that way. So I do think, especially as the Internet of Things uh, proliferates, this problem is arising more and more. And my expectation is over time, there'll be more. There'll be more opinions and perhaps some disagreements uh, between between courts. Not every not every court uh, necessarily will will do what the Sixth Circuit did in in Huff versus Spa. You know, the courts are sometimes. I guess I would even say often reluctant to personalize the content of the Fourth Amendment. So actually, Matthew Kugler and I have a, have a piece on this in the University of Chicago Law Review So um, from, a, from a few years back where we talked about the extent to which courts, when resolving issues in criminal procedure, either do or don't look at the characteristics of the defendant or the characteristics of the person challenging a search. There are some contexts 
in which um, the personal characteristics matter and age is a is a characteristic where sometimes some courts will say that these kinds of things matter but in general what the courts are are much more interested in doing is having a reasonable person one size fits all standard and so even if it were the case that let's say um someone were happened to be very inexperienced in the use of technology very naive about what a smartphone could do in general i think a court wouldn't take that into account either under the 4th amendment analysis or under the the electronic communications privacy act analysis that's informed by the 4th amendment precedents what does the huff ruling mean for the person recording the call how might the reasonable expectation of privacy interact with two party consent laws for example one of the things that the court does say at the end of the opinion is that while James Huff didn't have an expectation of privacy uh, his spouse may have he's having a conversation with his wife in person in their hotel room meanwhile that conversation is being transmitted back to the secretary in the United States who uh, records the end of that uh, conversation and the court says well James Huff you know it was his phone and he should have known better so he has no reasonable expectation of privacy but everyone's carrying around a cell phone these days and we don't want to hold that if you have a conversation face to face with someone who um has a cell phone and has accidentally pocket dialed someone else that that means that you have no reasonable expectation of privacy in the contents of your face to face communication uh, and i think the courts rightly worried that were it to rule otherwise it would um hugely chill face to face conversation and people would say okay i'll i'll talk to you about this sensitive thing but let me see your phone first uh we don't want we don't want people to get um paranoid about about uh those face to face communications especially if it's a if it's a communication you know between a uh a person and their spouse or a person and their lawyer or a person and their their priest etc so um you know i i i do think that's an important dimension of this and one way in which you can think of the huff versus spa court as being uh, somewhat protective of privacy and then now think about what that means for carol spa the defendant who listened in on the call and um towards the end of the call decided to to make an audio recording well um i think what it means for her for us is if we're on the receiving end of a pocket dial and the person calling us might not might not be able to sue us successfully for um for civil violation of the electronic communications privacy act uh, but if they're talking to someone let's say they're calling from a car and they've got a passenger in the vehicle who they're talking to and we're overhearing what the passenger says then the passenger may have a a right to successfully sue us and the you know the civil penalties for violating this particular federal statute uh, can be quite significant okay so that's part 1 of the answer so i do think if you're on the receiving end of a pocket dial first you know try and do what um uh what carol spa did which is to say hey i can hear you i don't think i i don't think i'm supposed to be listening in on this conversation but at the end of the day if the if the per- person on the other end of the pocket dial 
uh, keeps talking and it seems pretty clear that they're talking to someone else as opposed to talking to themselves, you should hang up uh, because if you don't hang up, there's a, there's a decent chance uh, you're violating a federal statute that has some, some pretty nasty penalties uh, associated with it. Okay, so, so that's, that's part one. A- as you point out, there are a number of states that uh, make it a violation of state law to uh, record someone without their consent. And uh, in those uh, two-party states, it doesn't matter. Let's say I were to be recording this conversation with you. In, in, in some states and under federal law, so long as I have my own consent to record the conversation, then I'm in the clear legally. But as you point out, a number of states say, no, unless both of us have consented to recording, the recording uh, could be unlawful. And I regard um, the question that, that you posed, uh, Deb, as a, a very much an open question, which is, can I be described as consenting to uh, a pocket-dialed or butt-dialed uh, phone call? I'm inclined to think the answer is no. If you were to argue that I consent to that, you would have to use analysis sort of like the analysis that the Sixth Circuit em- employed in Huff versus Spa. It's an, it's an implicit consent as opposed to an explicit consent. The, the omission, the failure to install an appropriate password lock on the phone or to install one of these apps that might prevent a butt dial, uh, that is um, sort of uh, tantamount to implicitly consenting that if you do mistakenly dial a phone number, that you're um, consenting to having the call recorded. That analysis seems like a stretch to me. It seems like you can maybe make a kind of assumption of risk argument, but to actually say consent, which implies a level of voluntariness, just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem especially persuasive when we're talking about these pocket dialed uh, telephone conversations. I don't want to describe this as a black or white issue. I, I could see the implicit consent argument being made it just seems pretty out of step with what we ordinarily require when we think about consent in the context, certainly of contract law, and maybe even in the context of a um, of a police search. So, you know, there are some differences in terms of you know what counts as consent to a search versus doctrines like the Plain View Doctrine. I think of plain view doctrine, i.e. if you leave your windows open and anyone on the sidewalk can see into your house and a police officer walks by the sidewalk and looks inside and notices that you have a whole bunch of marijuana plants, you know, obviously visible. That's that's plain view. I think of plain view as being much more about assumption of risk and much less about uh, consent. Um, And so to me, consent implies uh, something something knowing, something uh, voluntary. And I just think the, you know, almost by definition, the pocket dial is unknowing and involuntary. So I'd be, I'd be inclined to think that in those, uh, in those two-party consent states, recording a pocket dialed uh, telephone conversation purposefully is, um, is unlawful. Now, uh, I think the final thing is um, sometimes the recording is going to happen involuntarily from the recorder's perspective. 
So think about a pocket dial that goes to voicemail. And then um, uh, you're opening up your voicemail. You think, oh, uh, you know, why is uh, this person calling me? And then you listen to the voicemail and you think, oh, uh, all right, there's there's something embarrassing here. Um, I, I do think the there are really interesting issues about what are your obligations once you once you find that your um, phone contains a voicemail message that clearly seems to have resulted from pocket dialed activity. Human nature for most people is going to be you're going to listen to that thing you know all the way to the end to see if the speaker has said anything juicy about you. I think it's at least arguable that uh, that if you did so, uh, you could. Um, you could invade someone's someone's privacy under you know uh, tort law principles or or um, or one of the one of the broader fonts of of tort liability so a privacy liability so uh, I think you know it's it's fairly it's fairly dodgy but if if you find one of those voicemails on your on your um, iPhone I would say sort of the good thing to do you know maybe both for your mental health and for avoiding legal liability is to just delete it as soon as you realize what the what the contents of the conversation are and that they weren't meant for you. Thanks so much, Professor. Joining us now is Margaret Hu, a professor of law at the Pennsylvania State University. Professor, the Sixth Circuit relies on Katz's plain view doctrine, even though the Supreme Court had indicated a willingness to reevaluate precedent a year earlier in Riley v. California. Why do you think it chose not to continue that reevaluation in light of technological change? I think what's very fascinating with this case is the way that the circuit court judge, I think, looked at the subjective part of the cat's reasonable expectation of privacy test, and he converts it from this internal belief standard for whether or not somebody had a belief that something should be protected information. Then he walks through case precedent where he said the actual test that is more persuasive to me is whether or not somebody exhibited actively an intent to guard or shield the information. And then he does another shift and he said, here, they failed to keep the information private, and therefore they were negligent. And because of this neglect, they allowed for this information to be exposed to the public. And so I think that part of why he relies on the plain view test is that it conveniently falls within that shift that he's making so that it's increasingly difficult for an individual under his reading of reasonable expectation of privacy to achieve that standard. So if a judge is allowed to ask whether or not an individual took all possible steps, whether or not they were somehow negligent in taking affirmative steps to protect their privacy, that's a very tough standard. And it allows for a court to be able to say that, um, the expectation of privacy standard was not met. So I think that, you know, Riley and now, of course, most recently Carpenter, that was decided after this case. But the Supreme Court clearly, as you suggest, is taking, I think, a more expansive view 
of how to interpret reasonable expectation of privacy in light of emerging technologies. What's the significance of applying cats to citizen-citizen interceptions? Yeah, I also thought that that was very fascinating because they take this Title III law under, um, you know, another law and ask whether or not there was unlawful interception of wire, oral, or electric uh, electronic communication. And they said that um, in order to determine whether or not the party um, exhibited an expectation of privacy, that the communication, the wire, oral, or electronic communication was not intended to be intercepted, that they were going to use that CATS test. And so because I'm most familiar of the application of the CATS reasonable expectation of privacy test under the Fourth Amendment, I'm much more familiar with the application of it in the context of government surveillance and government actions, law enforcement actions that are being used to capture information and data. And here it's, as you state, citizen to citizen and not government to citizen. And so how does that change the analysis? Does reasonable expectation of privacy apply in the same way when it's citizen to citizen? And I'm not sure that it maps as neatly onto that framework. I think in part because of the objective part of the two-part CATS test. So they state that expectation of privacy under Title III um, involves, just like CATS, both, um, you know, a question of whether or not the intrusion was... Um, you know, or the expectation of privacy would be subjectively and objectively reasonable. And then they really don't deal with the objective part of the test. But the objective part of the test, I think, is really critical in understanding the nature of the intrusion. And so when you're talking about government surveillance or government action and whether or not somebody would consider that a reasonable um, action or whether or not they had a reasonable expectation of privacy to protect against that action, I think the objective standard is highly operable because you're considering what is something that would fall outside of what would be reasonable for the state to do. But when you're dealing with citizen-to-citizen -citizen interactions, I think it's not quite as clear um, what would be considered reasonable or unreasonable on an objective level. And so it, it almost appears like the subjective part of the CATS test would be even more critical in this context. And here you have the Huffs arguing that they clearly held an intention or belief that their communications had intended to remain private and confidential. So. Um, like I said, the court really focuses a lot on whether or not they think that that subjective part of the test was met and not so much whether the objective part of the test was met. And I think that that shows the flaws of trying to apply cats to a citizen-to-citizen -citizen interaction. Do you agree with the comparison the Sixth Circuit makes in equating not drawing the blinds with not locking an iPhone? Is failing to affirmatively secure a phone enough to rise to the level of failing to manifest an expectation of privacy? Yeah, I wasn't persuaded by that. And I often think that courts 
are reaching for these small data analogs or historical parallels in a more physical, non-digital context to reach for some type of analogy that they think is going to be useful um, in studying expectations of privacy. And I think that a lot of times it's just a mismatch. And, you know, I think that it's very difficult um, to imagine um, a failure to draw the blinds as the same as an accidental, um, you know, pocket dial because of the nature in which you can physically see whether or not your blinds are open or not open and physically take actions to close them based on that knowledge and awareness that the blinds are open or not open. But here the Huffs had no idea that the pocket dial had occurred until almost 90 minutes of the call had passed um, before they had become aware and for Shaw to be listening for the entire 91 minutes and peering into, um, you know, that conversation that was not intended, you know, for that individual. I think it's, it's a really different scenario than drawing of the blinds. On the court's reasoning, how far does the causal chain go? If someone did lock their phone, but it was inadvertently unlocked, do you think the court would say that person established a reasonable expectation of privacy? Yeah, I, I think that the problem with the reasoning of the course that I had with is the fact that they were trying to make it increasingly difficult to establish expectation of privacy. So to the point where they were shifting it to not only did you fail to take affirmative steps that would exhibit that you intended to keep the information private, but you were also negligent in that neglect and taking all the steps that we considered to be reasonable to protect your privacy then we would find that there was a failure to establish reasonable expectation of privacy. So if you extend that logic to that hypothetical that you just stated, that somebody locks their phone and then unlocks their phone, um, would that allow a court to say that you unlock your phone? That's going to be what we considered an action of neglect, that you failed to take all steps necessary. It's just a very high standard. It's one that I have trouble with. I just don't agree with it. And I think that the way that they try to shift it from a standard of, did you hold a belief that the information should be private? Um, they shifted it way down to, did you take all steps to protect your information in a way that we wouldn't consider to be neglectful? Um, it's a far cry from whether or not you had a belief that the information would be private. And so I think that's what's objectionable. It's that the court is taking active steps to diminish what it even means, the definition and the meaning of reasonable expectation of privacy. Do you think there's a better way to deal with imperfect uses of technology? Yeah. And I think that the way that you would do it is you start with the objective test and not with the subjective test. So I've advocated for flipping the test and asking what would be a societal norm um, or what I call the 1984 or Orwell standard. And, and I drew that flip of the cat's test from the oral argument of the Jones case, which was the warrantless um, GPS tracking case. And 
during oral argument, um, 1984 was raised by um, the counsel on both sides and the Supreme Court justices half a dozen times. And it seemed that the Supreme Court was really grappling with what is reasonable expectation of privacy mean if you have the government prevail and their argument being that warrantless GPS tracking should be allowed because we could post deputies on every street corner, but that wouldn't be efficient. So this is just a more efficient way of doing what we could physically do hypothetically. And by using Orwell as a standard or a touchstone to sort of guide an interpretation of what is reasonable under the Fourth Amendment, what's reasonable um, under the CATS test. So what does it really mean? What does expectation of privacy mean under a sense of what's reasonable through the lens of an Orwellian um, floor? If you set that floor, you say, you know, you cannot, you know, violate the Orwell standard of reasonable expectation of privacy. Then I argued in a piece that was published in Washington um, Law Review that it's basically a flip of the CATS test instead of a subjective to objective standard, then it's more of an up, you lead with the objective societal test first. You know, just decrying the failures of, you know, the jurisprudence is not going to get us very far as the technology keeps changing, right? And you see the Supreme Court justices really trying. So from Riley to Carpenter, you can see them understanding like cyber searches are different than physical searches. And, you know, in fact, they're starting to say that it's not really, you know, um, search and seizure anymore, that it's the seizure of the data and then it's the cyber search of that data. So they're starting to say, you know, it's not search and seizure, it's seizure and search. But it shows how like the Fourth Amendment is changing. You know what I mean? It's changing before our very eyes. So we better start thinking about it differently. And in a Boggs opinion, it seems like he's still trying to hang on to um, a, a conception of like the world that we had before iPhones, you know, with like you were saying, the drawing of the blinds, you know, it's just not analogous. It's not going to be the best way to interpret, um, you know, privacy. Thank you so much, Professor Hu. Thank you so much, Deb. I had a lot of fun reading this case and had, you know, a great time talking with you today. Joining us now is Julian Sanchez, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Thanks for being here. My first question is, what are the pitfalls of the reasonable expectation of privacy test? I mean, I think, you know, one of the criticisms almost from the get-go of the expectation of privacy test, um, not just in this sort of novel context of uh, protecting citizens' privacy against each other, but in the original Fourth Amendment context, is that I think very quickly it departed from any kind of mooring in actual social expectations. Um, I mean, sort of naively, one might imagine that if you were trying to determine you know, whether a particular expectation of privacy you know, exists and is reasonable um, or is an expectation that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable, um, you would want to do some kind of empirical inquiry. Historically, we find the courts typically not incredibly interested in that empirical question. Um, what is the actual broad expectation of privacy? What, is, you know, what does a normal citizen think is reasonable? 
And so indeed, reasonable ends up doing most of the work there. Uh, and it ends up being less what is society prepared to recognize as reasonable and more what seems reasonable to the judge adjudicating the case, which, you know, I think actually raises, I think, um, a broader host of, uh, of questions, you know, uh, you know, judges and uh, the attorneys who represent them or who, you know, present, uh, argue cases before them, um, tend to come from right particular social classes. Historically, they've been, you know, overwhelmingly majority white, less so increasingly. Um, but you have the jurisprudence, right, purporting to locate a, a kind of disembodied reasonable expectation of privacy that you know, probably corresponds a lot to the kind of privacy that, you know, well-educated upper middle class, uh, you know, mostly white folks think is reasonable. Uh, and, you know, looking at the kind of the case law that shaped the Fourth Amendment, they, they do not seem overly curious about whether their expectations of privacy are, are widely shared or whether what is what is expected and what seems reasonable within that social circle seems equally reasonable to, uh, you know, folks with different backgrounds. You know, the kind of issues of place and uh, of race and class aside, looking at the kind of case law, unpacking the idea of a reasonable expectation of privacy, you again, don't find a lot of interest really in the expectation part so much as um, the reasonable part where reasonable is, is largely, uh, you know, sort of extrapolated from the intuitions of the judges. Uh, and it is of particular difficulty in cases involving new technology, precisely because expectations uh, have not really begun to gel. And in particular, especially when, uh, you know, we begin using technologies whose function is not particularly transparent to us. Um, and of course, people's understanding of what is being shared evolves over time. Like in these sort of early days of cell phones, um, the idea that your location could be extrapolated from you know, triangulation of, of cell tower records um, was an unfamiliar one. People didn't assume that because they're carrying a cellular phone, um, their location can be tracked. But then over time with the advent of smartphones and the fact that there are sort of user-facing applications that make use of the fact that the location can be extrapolated either from cell site location information or from uh, GPS information, um, people are much more aware that, yeah, the, the phone at the very least and probably uh, many other third parties uh, that are in contact with the phone um, are aware of my geographical location. The difficulty comes when courts are sort of asked to assess, well, what is the reasonable expectation of privacy vis-a-vis -vis this, uh, this kind of information technology um, at a point when those expectations are unsettled and indeed at a point when the court's own decisions may have a not insignificant role in determining what is widely expected. Um, and this is, you know, an issue that was, I think, recognized from the get-go. Uh, there's a footnote in Katz, uh, Katz of the United States, where they acknowledge that, well, we see that there's a, a possible problem with a reasonable expectation of privacy test, which is, of course, a, a, a bad and repressive regime could declare that uh, as of tomorrow, all telephones are wiretapped. And then, uh, of course, nobody would expect privacy. And they sort of note this and then don't spend a lot of time on it, in particular, because that, that I think, particular example seems sort of fanciful. Well, of course, you could not defeat a pre-existing 
expectation of privacy in that way. Does Huff represent a departure from Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, or is it in line with it? It's sort of interesting to contrast the way expectations of privacy are treated in this case and the way they're treated in the seminal um, third-party doctrine cases. Because in this instance, um, the court gets kind of very granular about what kinds of, of potential exposures are kind of encompassed by the reasonable expectation of privacy. So you have, in general, a reasonable expectation of privacy in your conversations, but you don't have a reasonable expectation uh, against the exposure of that conversation, specifically by the mechanism of a pocket dial. Um, at least if the phone is in your pocket and not the pocket of the person you're speaking to. And this looks very different from the expectations of privacy analysis we get in cases like uh, U.S. v. Miller and Smith v. Maryland that established the third-party doctrine, the idea that uh, people essentially waive their Fourth Amendment privacy interest and information that has been voluntarily conveyed to uh, corporations or other third parties as is increasingly quite normal for, for all sorts of very sensitive information. And, you know, in, in those cases, the court says, well, you've turned over uh, your bank records or your information about your phone calling behavior uh, to the bank or the phone company respectively. And right, your, so your privacy expectation is nullified sort of all in one go. And they should explicitly say, well, it doesn't really matter what kind of contractual promises are made, because after all, the, the, you know, the bank or the phone company could you know, betray that promise and, and give away the information. So the idea is that once you've sort of allowed the bank or, the, or the, the phone company or the third party to use this information for some limited set of purposes, the expectation of privacy is gone. It's all or nothing. You have the expectation of privacy or you've sort of allowed enough cracks in that it's gone completely. Whereas in the Huff case, the court is very much at pains to not think about it in this way, to say, well, there's uh, the, the expectation of privacy is defeated as against observation via pocket dial. Uh, but of course, this doesn't mean, and it would, of course, be incredibly alarming if it meant um, that the expectation of privacy in the conversation is gone totally, regardless of whether there was a pocket dial. And, you know, you can see why the court would not want to, to uh, permit that conclusion. They would want to make it clear that the possibility of a pocket dial doesn't mean, and therefore, if you don't take certain technical countermeasures, you can't expect privacy in your conversations, period, at least not in the presence of a phone. But it also means thinking about it in, in a way very different from uh, a lot of other important rulings um, that have seen the expectation of privacy as something that um, is, is sort of like a balloon, right? It's once you puncture... Once you puncture it, uh, uh, even if it's a, a hole you try to, to limit, um, the whole structure sort of collapses. Do you think courts expect too much from users of technology? There, there is, I think, you know, so something of the nerd scold in, 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 in the panel's ruling here, uh, in the sense, you know, there are always those people who, when something like this happens, want to tell you, you know, what you did wrong and how if you were more tech savvy, you could have done a better job of it. Um, and you know, often those people are right. You know, every now and then I'm, I am one of those people, um, because you, you do want to tell people here is how you can protect your privacy better. It's, it, it just seems like the more complex both communications technology 
and the means of attacking uh, our efforts to protect ourselves become, um, right, the more impossibly demanding, in a sense, it is to perfectly protect yourself. There's more threats of exposure and the mechanisms for protecting ourselves are more complex. And so there's this, this kind of danger of making the standard of exhibiting a subjective expectation of privacy, right, the approximation of this kind of crypto nerd ideal. Well, why didn't you use Signal and PGP? And why didn't you, uh, and in a way, the kind of expansion of mechanisms for privacy protection, right, in a way, if you take this to its logical conclusion, ends up diminishing the real protections of an ordinary person who is not fully conversant with the sort of sprawling range of privacy protective mechanisms that are available. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Julian. Thanks so much for joining us. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UshaiLrev and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thanks, and we'll see you soon for the next episode of Briefly Season 4.